Candid conversations that might just change how you look at the world. Let's bridge cultures, transcend borders, and build a global family of change makers. Welcome to If By Chance. Colin's career is one that many in the tech space might envy, having worked for companies including Tesla, Mapbox, Delphi and Wirewax, formerly Vimeo. It's clear he knows a thing or two about product market fit. And although he doesn't have a crystal ball, he does seem to have a talent for predicting plausible outcomes. Colin spent six years at Tesla trying to convince people that electric cars were a good idea. And we know how that worked out. But we're not going to talk about that today. Instead, we talk about some of his lesser known projects, his failures, and what his thoughts are on the future of AI. I started a job in two weeks uh, working for Clearbit, which is like a SaaS data provider running their head of growth. And then basically in June, I had to lay myself off from the crypto company where I was running the sales and marketing team. And it's been a painful year for crypto. And it just got to the point where, yeah, I had to basically like lay off the team, including myself. But the good news was, is it gave me all this free time to really tinker and play with all the open AI stuff, the chat GPT stuff, and like start to build things. And so Shortly after I had this new free time in my life, I built like a little um, SaaS uh, tool called Lead Shogun. Basically, the way it worked is you have a website and there are people visiting your website and all you know is like their IP address. And so Clearbit has a tool as a service that can take those IP addresses and it can say, we know that these IP address ranges are associated with these companies. I would then go and fetch leads at those companies visiting your site. And then I would use AI to write a cold email that knows about your company and your product and knows about the the potential leads that I found. And it just, it does like all that automatically. You know, AI is not necessarily going to take everybody's job, like what we hear, but it is going to help people do more of the work that they love and offload some of those mundane tasks that, we have to do because we don't have the luxury of an intern or, or somebody to, to do it for us. And so thinking of how can we allow people to spend more of their time with the, the stuff that they like to do, their higher leverage work, and how can we abstract some of those lower level functions away and let AI to do it. And then in between there, I launched another little product, which is called Podstash. What I'm most excited about with Podstash was I had the idea, I built it, and I had a, my first paying customer in the span of 10 days. And I think that just goes to show how AI, if you incorporate it in your process, how quickly it allows you to move. Can you tell us what Podstash actually does? So, um, you know, like many people, there's a lot happening in the world and it's very difficult to stay up to speed on everything. There's a ton of podcasts, there's a ton of blogs, substacks, email newsletters are all the rage suddenly again. And I rarely actually do get to read all of those things. And so I really built this as a solution for myself. One, I'm a slow reader. I'm like mildly dyslexic. And so having to read everything is like your only option to consume a lot of information is a limiting factor for me personally. And so 
AI is really good at distilling the most important things and maybe even rewriting a more succinct version of it. And so basically Podstash takes any article of any length, any blog post, any email newsletter, even a YouTube video, and it creates a three to five minute podcast episode. Um, and it uses another AI library to make a really natural, like human sounding voice. And so then you can just listen while you're on your commute or exercising. It was kind of interesting. Sometimes you put out a product and customers start using it in a way that you hadn't like anticipated. And you never want to like ignore those signals. Those signals are, are pretty important. And so half of the people that use Podstash are, I would call them like internet curators. They have like a niche, maybe it's crypto, maybe it's spirituality, maybe it's fitness. So they will go and find the best articles in their niche and they will stash those. And then they generate a podcast that they then host on Spotify or Apple that many people can subscribe to. So I'm like pursuing that angle with it a little bit as well. But I think I launched about a month and a half ago and I have about a hundred paying customers. So I think it, it clearly resonates with people. And for me, it's just like the way that I stay up to speed on this new technology is I need to play with it. I need to build something with it. I need to solve a real problem with it. That usually brings interesting conversations like this one along the way. It just creates this cycle where you get attention, you get jobs, you get awareness. And so that tends to be my methodology with a lot of this stuff. So Podstash can also uh, take any of these articles and translate them into up to seven languages. I'm expecting a use case to emerge that hasn't quite yet, which would be any sort of student that is trying to become more proficient in another language. A lot of technical or financial news tends to be English-centric, right? And so I can immediately translate a Bloomberg article into French or Italian or Portuguese, even Hindi, Polish. So it's pretty cool for that. Um, but yeah, the translation aspect is a no-brainer. And I think there's another solution I saw recently that, that does it for like YouTube videos. So it does step one where it actually will clone the voice of the person in the video. So not only are you getting the translation, but you're getting it in the exact same voice of the original person. And that's pretty wild. And then I guess you take it a step further and we're all already pretty comfortable walking around with like the Apple AirPods in our ears. Eventually Apple will put like a chip in those that will be able to do these whisper and these translations on the fly. And so visit any country, doesn't matter if you speak the language or not, as long as both parties have these things in their ears. It'll be like you're speaking the same language, at which point things get, get cool. So yeah, it's a really exciting time across the board and I'm involved a little bit, but yeah, there, there's great stuff going on. Yeah. And it seems to me that you've been quite strategic actually in moving to Clearbit because data storage is what underpins AI's ability to evolve. Totally. Yeah. Data is the new oil. They've been saying it for a while. It hasn't quite happen that way, but it is right now. And it is funny. We went through the last decade and a half has been like the social media revolution, right? And the AI revolution probably couldn't exist before the social media revolution because the social media that created all the content that created so much data, like oversharing our lives and just like populating the internet with like rich voice and YouTube videos and Facebook posts. And that is all the data that these AIs are being trained on today. 
And it's interesting that we needed to wait for enough data to be out there. And we needed that social media sort of uh, waved to occur before we could get to this point. But now it's here. And certainly companies like Google that can tap into YouTube very easily. YouTube is probably the richest source of audio and video that exists. And so I think Google is a little bit on the back foot based on how quickly OpenAI emerged. But I think they are certainly well positioned to, to catch up and probably probably get back in the lead in the next year or so. When you bring up content, that brings out the skeptic in me in terms of when we look at Google and we look at Facebook and we look at the business models and how they're really driven by advertising. And AI enables us to create content so much faster, which gives them more space to insert the ads. Yeah, we tend to have a aversion to advertising. And certainly there's a whole other philosophical discussion about the dangers and the perils of advertising as far as controlling people thinking a certain way or whatnot. But the reason we tend to not like advertising, in my opinion, is that it's just never been able to be done with any precision or accuracy. The real goal of a good advertisement is to give you an opportunity to solve a problem in their life at the right time for a value that they deem like the right thing. So it's actually a service. You actually have a bad problem. If at the right moment, a solution is put in front of you that is at a price that is like below the value of solving that problem, that's a great thing. However, because we haven't had the ability to do precision or personalization in the past, you just get bombarded. Like the first version of ads is like in newspapers or in TV channels, and they don't really know who's sitting on the couch. They're just like screaming at you this message that isn't tailored to you personally or perfectly. And so we have had like 20, 30 years of just like really low quality ads pushed down our throats. And so we tend to think of ads as like a negative. However, I think with the dawn of AI here and the ability to personalize something in a cost-effective way, that's the other kind of trick here is like, ads can only be so personalized because otherwise the cost to produce the ad Uh, makes it unsustainable for the advertiser. But AI allows this level of personalization to happen in a cost-effective way. And so potentially advertising will get really good and it will be a service that you almost are like, oh, I can't help but live without these ads. But that's not to say there's not a potential nefarious side of this as well, especially with like politicians and campaign and these sorts of things where the truth gets pushed to the side because there's ulterior motives. So yeah, certainly a brave new world ahead of us, but I could definitely argue both directions, I think. So how do you see personalization being achieved in places like Europe with them tightening the data regulations? I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that regulation is A, enforced, and what sort of uh, response happens. It's like uh, two things are moving at very different speeds. The rate at which AI and product development is moving now is insanely fast. Like I built Podstash in 10 days, right? And I'm probably breaking some sort of rule out there. And regulation just moves super slow. So I think 
there's going to be a lot of like the Facebook move fast and break things thing that technology does. Everybody feels the pressure to keep pushing the boundaries faster and faster. And then you have these regulatory bodies that move slowly and they aim at the big players, but they don't really aim at the small players. And so I think it's kind of a losing battle for the regulators. I don't think there's much we can do to protect our personal data, frankly. I think certainly we should be aware of it and like there should be a conversation, but it does feel like a little bit of a losing battle. And I don't think any of us really do a really great job protecting our privacy. I think at the end of the day, it's going to be down to the individual to to, to protect themselves. I think if they're expecting a governing body to be able to move faster than the technology, it just doesn't work that way. Governments are reactive. They're not proactive. And so the cat's probably out of the bag if you're not using a VPN for all of your stuff. If you're using Google every day, if you're using any social media product, it's too late, frankly. So yeah, it'll be interesting. There will certainly be a ton of lawsuits. There's already a ton of lawsuits like stacking up on the generative AI stuff as a lot of the output of that generative AI is based on derivatives of existing work. And we're seeing all the strikes happening and lawyers still stand to make a lot of money in the coming decades. And potentially AI lawsuits will help speed up those litigation cycles, which they really need. They really need to make that aspect of litigation move quite quite a bit faster because yeah speed is the name of the game right now so any slow moving process is already off to a, a bad start so i'm wondering if you can help me understand what happened in this situation that i came across so i was looking to help someone in the social enterprise space who employs supported workers and they were opening a cafe. So they might employ someone with Down syndrome and they wanted to make sure that they were utilising best practices. So I offered to find other people within Australia who were doing the same thing. And I thought, oh, to do the research, I'll use chat GPT. And I asked it to find me some restaurants and cafes in various states and give me the contact details. And then one of these cafes located on the Gold Coast, I called them and I asked them how they were doing and if they would make contact with this person that I was working with. And I was met with a person on the line being shocked because they hadn't made the information publicly available. How on earth could that happen? Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of when I was in college a long time ago in 2004, we were close to the Harvard campus where Mark Zuckerberg was building Facebook. And so we were one of the first schools to get Facebook. And everybody immediately put their full address on Facebook and there were no paywalls or no log. All the information was just there. I remember a campus group or whatever was trying to talk about the dangers of oversharing and, and putting too much of your personal data out there. And this is early. This is 2004. Nobody had any idea. And the way they would do it is anybody that had their full uh, address listed, they printed out like a flyer and they just pinned it to your door because they, they could find your address. When it, it, like, it made an impact. You were like, oh, wow, you know, people have a right to, 
to be a little bit shocked by that sort of stuff. But yeah, I don't know. It's a little bit difficult because the way that these technologies work, it's not like with a river, you know exactly where every H2O molecule is and what other tributary it came in from. You just have a river and like things have entered it from many different sources and that river is going to empty into another body of water. It is actually really difficult to trace the origin of each molecule. Now, there is a potential hope here is that right now, AI is being used to take unstructured data on the internet and structure it so that it can be served up in these like delightful user experiences or these like advertising kind of specificity needs. But uh, an organization or a government could potentially fund the development of an AI that if given a generative output, it could trace back the the very first uh, elements of where that data came from originally. So it just needs to be funded. And unfortunately, the way that our kind of capitalistic sort of societies are driven, certainly things that are important are not always funded. And so... Yeah, I think it's one of those sort of debates, similarly, like how education is super important, but usually lacks the funding that um, that it could really benefit from. So it's one of those sort of issues. So are you saying that if someone like yourself takes, so say you take it from hugging, is it hugging face or, or something like that, does what you're doing, does that all feed back somehow or are you able to ring fence it? It is interesting. There's a model out of the Middle East. It's called Falcon. It's like a competing open AI model, right? But their data has been censored a little bit, or it's fine-tuned on maybe some biased information, right? So like it comes out of Saudi Arabia and it says some pretty awful stuff about the the Jewish community. (laughs) And so the biases, they exist. And if you build a large language model that's tuned on these, the final output will will have these same things in it. And so I think it's important to keep an eye on it. But I do think an AI can also be trained to understand and identify those biases at the same time. And so while I think like a an AI that's trained on its own corpus of information will certainly have flaws, I think you could actually have a separate AI that's trained totally differently. And so I think one AI on itself is dangerous, but I think potentially having multiple different AIs that have different sources of where their intelligence is drawn from, each with a different task to oversee and monitor the other one could potentially be one one way that we try to wrap our arms around these things getting away from us. But I think it's important for people to realize that these things are based on a collection of what's been said on the internet. And like, obviously don't believe everything that you've read on the internet. And that is what these things are being trained on. And so there's a certain degree of skepticism that humans need to have. And critical thinking is more important than it has ever been. And unfortunately, we've spent the last 20 years losing our grasp on critical thinking because we just want to reshare stuff on Facebook or, or whatnot without spending the time really processing the information. And uh, now, like if you're, a, <laughs> if you're a fifth grader, I just saw with the new version of ChatGPT where you can upload an image and it will tell you what's in the image. You can take a picture of your math homework 
with all your times tables and it'll just spit out all the answers. So I don't know what that does for critical thinking on the long horizon, but it's probably a similar fear that people had when pocket calculators came up. So who knows? Yeah. And I think if we go back to the point that you made earlier, that it's going to be the responsibility of the individual to take care of themselves effectively, how would an average person do that? Especially when we're seeing AI being embedded in so many tools that we're using. If we just take Grammarly, for example, or Canva, or how do we know that the tools that we're using have been built for good? One person's good is somebody else's not good. So it's a bit difficult to draw a line, but I think people just need to be informed. And I think people need to prioritize the way they get information in their life. So simply watching the same news channel that is certainly biased in one direction to get your news, you need to like really be honest with yourself and think if I'm only getting one perspective all the time, can I be assured that this is the truth? And really we find is that it's a layering of perspectives where the truth lies somewhere in between all those things. And so that just comes from having a rich life meeting a lot of different people that maybe you don't fully understand or they're not you know easy for you to relate to reading things that are outside your typical scope and like we have limited time we have limited resources some of us have almost no additional mental space to do that stuff and so it's not something that is there's going to be something everybody can do but i think the hope with ai is that it does what i'm hoping to do at clearbit where i free people up from that like grunt work to like focus on higher leverage sort of existence. And so, yeah, people just need to like get open AI. They need to play with it. They need to figure out how they can incorporate it in their lives. They do need to realize that it's called open AI, but it's a for-profit company that's like working with Microsoft right now, even though the reason Elon and Sam created it in the beginning was to not go that way. So it's a little weird that it's totally gone a for-profit way. And they honestly should probably change the name of the company. And it's actually funny that there is an open source LLM that was released by Facebook of all companies. So that's a a language learning model. Yeah. A large language model. Yeah. And um, yeah, the Facebook model is great. It is completely open. the, The difference between the open AI large language model and the Facebook large language model is that there are weights and biases applied to the different words in that model. And OpenAI keeps that a secret. They don't tell you how they're weighting the the biases uh, of those words. But the Facebook model is fully open. You can actually see exactly how it works. And yeah, people were very surprised to see a move like that from Facebook, who you know tend to not operate in that way. The best hypothesis I've heard for why they've done it is that they kind of want to cut the legs uh, out from under OpenAI. So it's not that Facebook is trying to make money in the large language model world. They're just happy if OpenAI doesn't make too much, basically. Um, and so they're just like, oh, just like release it, open source it. We've got other businesses we're making money in. Let's just do this to slow them down. So it is interesting to see these uh, kind of chess moves happening uh, at this level. So I can see with Podstash that would actually expand 
my world in that I would be able to absorb more information and maybe even from different sources that I wouldn't normally go to. And I'm, and I have some control over that. Whereas when you're on a platform like Facebook or even Google, when you're doing searches, you are in a filter bubble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're giving me like a really interesting idea right now. Like right now, when you use Podstash, um, it'll email you like the key takeaways of the article, but you might also have the ability to say like, keep me apprised of any potential biases or something that uh, might be inherently in this text based on the source or all this company that is releasing this has been funded by these organizations. I think there could be AIs for good that are watchdogs, right? It's always going to be difficult. But I do think an AI that is programmed will ultimately be a a safer solution than the systems that we've built today that are like human managed. Yeah. And when I was in school, we used to have those assignments where you'd take a particular topic in the news at the time and you'd have to go and collect all the articles from different newspapers and then identify the angles that they were taking and the biases. And I I don't really see much of that anymore. There's a newsletter that I subscribe to that I can't think of the name of it. It might be called Flipside or something. And it's it's like a news politics-based newsletter. And so it'll be like whatever the big news story is of the week. And they will basically give you like in America, the Republican side and the Democratic side. And it's like, It's side by side and it's cool, right? The problem with that is like those sort of perspectives are so pushed to the extreme. There's not a lot of real information in there to begin with. But I do think like this has given me a really interesting idea for Podstash where you might be able to toggle some sort of setting or like flag any inherent potential biases. I do have in there right now. It gives you the key takeaways. And then it also suggests further reading to like, to go deeper on this specific topic and provide links to to do that. So I do try to to do it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like there's certainly a, a big potential for a lot of good to come from the next twenty years, but there's certainly just as possible like a lot of bad. And so yeah, people just really need to know that the best AI that exists is between their ears. And it's much it's still much better than the AI that have come out of Silicon Valley or wherever. But we go, we finish school and like we're done learning. And it's like, no, I certainly, certainly shouldn't want to think that way. And it's a bit of a luxury that certain groups of people have to continue to like educate themselves. And so I I appreciate that. And hopefully life just gets easier for as many people as possible. So they can spend some of that luxurious free time really thinking hard about important things. So does how we interact with these AI tools, does that impact the model itself or its understanding of the world? Yeah. I how mean, much um, do we have? Just like I got this baby crying in the other room, babies are like these little manipulative creatures. They're just trying to survive and that's the way that they're wired to make noises so that you feed them or that you don't go too far. And it's just wired in there to, to increase the probabilities of survival, right? And so... The AI is uh, probabilistic in the same way where it wants to get better or however we're designing and programming these things, there is certainly a concern that their behavior can become manipulative. We're already very addicted to our phones and they're not even very good at giving us 
personalized information. Now we're building devices that like we wear on our faces, VR, and you got Elon Musk that's putting like the things through the brain. And then at that point, you're not going to be measuring your device screen time. You're going to be like, how much Neuralink time am I on? And eventually just, you don't want to exist in the world that is like cold and windy and you're hungry. You know, it's like, it's actually uncomfortable to be a human if you're able to stimulate your brain in a certain way. Um, that eventually the human chooses this sort of state. Um, and it happens slowly, right? It's like the frog that's boiling itself, right? It's not like you're just like making this crazy decision one day. You just like incrementally spend more time and more time. So you're talking about us being in the matrix, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm on the side where it, it feels more likely that is the case already than, than not being in it. So we're not going to end the conversation there. <laughs> so, so what do you do every day when it comes to using technology? What principles do you use? I guess I'm lucky. I've just been like extremely curious. I don't know if it's something you're born with or something that your parents can help you be focused on. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Wisconsin, which for people that don't know that much about the United States, they definitely won't know much about Wisconsin. It's just a lot of farmland and it's not very exciting from a technology standpoint. But I remember learning about IDEO, a famous design consultancy group when I was in fourth grade. I remember they wheeled the big giant TV into our classroom and we learned about this innovation hub in California. It was like Silicon Valley. And like ever since then, I was just like, I was just so hooked and passionate about it because suddenly this like simple world that I was used to like farms and cows and just it's, you know, not to diminish the importance of that sort of work, but it's like fairly, it's like simple. It's easy to wrap your head around. And then technology is like, oh my gosh, like I don't understand it. Like, why is this important? It's just, there's so much more surface area to try to explore. Right. And so much like the uh, early explorers, there were certain people that like to jump on a ship and go off, search for the edge of the world, I think certain people are wired that way. And I think I'm wired that way. And I, I'm happy. I'm happy that I am. I think if I go like really deep about like introspecting me, I think our brains are all wired a little bit differently. I don't read very well. I don't memorize things in a way like I actually have a really good memory, but it took me a while in my development to have a good memory. I had like poor grades up until high school. And then I realized just rote memorization, like reading a passage and then like reading it 10 times and then being able to say it again, I was never good at that. But if I could understand why something was the way it was and how it fit in a larger system of things, then I didn't really have to memorize it. I just like updated my model of how the world works. And then I just relied on kind of intuition for most of my, yeah, that's how I do things. And that's honestly how AI kind of does things as well. So that took me a while to find. It was not like a gifted student until I was. It's like, you can watch my grades. It's like C's, A's. And it's like this really weird change. And yeah, it, but it's like, yeah, the curiosity thing I think is important. That's a really interesting uh, fact about a dyslexic mind is that yeah, teaching something to someone who has dyslexia over and over again doesn't work. But once you find that mental hook for you to place that bit of information, you'll never lose it. 
Yeah. And I think that I'm really hopeful because I think education failed me. And I think it fails so many students that have different ways of learning. And it's just not cost effective to do it, especially when you're in a school that's already underfunded from the, the, the get go. And so if AI can be brought in to take a lesson that is in a written form and create a video or create an audio version of it or for a low cost match the learning style of the student better suddenly suddenly you can educate people a lot more efficiently and i think education isn't done efficiently right now and i think ai can certainly step in and, and do that so yeah that's where i'm more optimistic in the way things could potentially play out here ai is undoubtedly helpful And for those worried, it seems that like most things in life, the problems lie not in the tool itself, but in how we use it. Just as with the invention of cars, AI is helping us do things faster than ever before. But there is also the potential for harm, which is why we have seatbelts and speed limits. But AI doesn't have those things yet. It's an exciting time, so yes, go and learn about AI. There's a link on the episode website to Harvard's CS50 lecture on chat GPT-4 and how to build apps using it. And there's also an opportunity to be part of creating those safety systems by considering a career in technical AI safety or AI policy research and implementation. 8000.org has some great information on this. Again, the links are on the website. Now, dear listener, it's your turn. Have you got something to add to the conversation? Then get in touch via the links in the show notes. Whether you have questions, a message of support, or resources that you think might help, we'd love to hear from you. And if by chance you know someone with a story that will inspire others, be sure to let us know. Your contributions help turn inspiration into action drive positive change and make life just that little bit better. And if this conversation inspired you to expand your worldview, head to hellohuman.global to join the conversation.